The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Jason Vitello, the Behavioral Health Coordinator at Denver Public Health and the Colorado Public Health Association, with his presentation, Male Mental Health, A Crisis in Public Health. Thank you all for being here. My name is Jason Vitello. I am uh, the Behavioral Health Coordinator for Denver Public Health, the Director of Health Equity for the Colorado Public Health Association. And uh, I'm also an adjunct professor across the street at the Graduate School of Social Work. I teach human behavior in the social environment and critical race theory. Um, and I'm going to present today on male mental health as a crisis in public health. And I appreciate you all being here. I'd like to point out that while I primarily work at the community or the population levels of engagement, and I'm a public health professional and educator, uh, I spent a significant portion of my earlier career as a direct service provider, a clinician, uh, so a social worker, case manager, and a therapist. I'm a much better therapist now that I no longer see patients. Um, but I, I worked extensively, not exclusively, but pretty extensively, close to 10 years with men and male youth. Uh, from... Uh, youth in foster care, juvenile probationers, men in recovery, veterans, non-custodial fathers, and, uh, and beyond. I also like to point out that before I was ever a professional helper in any capacity, I was a young man in need of some help himself. Uh, had my own experiences with, uh, mental health challenges, violence on both sides of that equation. I was a father by the age of 17 and a single father by the age 21, and luckily there were people in place who were there to, to help me and look out for me, and in turn I committed myself to becoming uh, a helper as well. I did not have any sophisticated understanding of what that might look like. I initially just set out to be more than an angry man in a bar, which sometimes I still am. I might have been last night. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to share some things with you today that I've learned along the way that will hopefully provide you with a better understanding of the mental health challenges experienced by men, the societal impact of these challenges, and the need for a societal response, and what that response has looked like, at least part of that response, what that response has looked like uh, here in Colorado. Can you all hear me okay? And see the, the screen? All right. There should be plenty of time for any questions you might have at the end. Um, so, my first role as a public health professional was uh, under the uh, Metro Public Health Behavioral Health Collaborative. And we worked under the SIM grant to help improve the health of all Coloradoans by furthering the integration of primary care and behavioral health. We welcome to understand the value of primary care and serving as a gateway to getting people into specialized treatment, right? So your primary care doctor uh, screens you for high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, and can make the appropriate referrals to, uh, to another professional. And we're, we were trying to expand that into behavioral health and substance use. Um, however, one of the problems that we realized or the limitations of that model is that men, we don't go to primary care either, right? And we make jokes about this, and it's really pervasive in our society. We as men, we don't stop and ask for direction. We don't ask for help. Uh, we don't go to the doctor, and we definitely don't talk to shrinks. Um, one of the most critically acclaimed and commercially successful television shows of all time, The Sopranos, was largely about this, right? Male mental health, or lack thereof, and resistance to help-seeking and to change. Uh, but it's really not a laughing matter, and you don't have to have uh, any kind of specialized degree in mental health, or even have the news on for too long to get the sense that there's something awry with the men and the boys in this country. 
And if you did look at some of the numbers, you might come to agree with uh, entities like Psychology Today that we are in the midst of uh, a bona fide public health crisis. And it's a crisis that begins early, uh, where 75% of student suspensions, expulsions, grade failures, special ed referrals, uh, assaults, and punishments for violent behavior are for boys. The fact that men are twice as likely to become alcohol dependent or become addicted to any substances uh, or die from an overdose. Men account for 75% of the chronically homeless. Uh, 61% of men report having experienced trauma. And 1 in 10 men suffer from depression. Now that last, that last bullet I think is notable. Because given some of these other numbers, 1 in 10 men reporting unipolar depression actually seems low, right? And there's a lot of speculation that men are under-reporting uh, symptoms of mental illness uh, or experiences of trauma. A lot of that, well, there's, there's three kind of prevailing theories. The first one, not so much. Uh, it's that men maybe experience less depression, which doesn't seem likely. Or men... Uh, are less likely to uh, report signs of mental health problems or distress given aspects of male socialization, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, and or men experience depression and anxiety differently, right? So they might not tell the screener that, uh, yeah, I've actually felt pretty blue or hopeless or sad in the past 30 days or six months. But they might say, yes, I have felt more irritability or outright aggression uh, around my family and loved ones, or I'm feeling, uh, I'm having a hard time sleep, or I'm using more alcohol, right? So I think it's important to, to be mindful and uh, culturally responsive across the board, uh, but that includes gender responsiveness in our screening as well as our treatment. More about that later. Uh, and I think the, the latter two explanations are more likely, given numbers like this. Right? 80% of deaths by suicide are men. 80%. That's one man per minute globally and over half a million a year. In Denver alone, men represent 76% of Denver suicide-related deaths. The leading cause of death here in Colorado uh, for those ages 10 to 24 and the second leading cause for uh, ages 15 to 44. I do want to point out that women attempt suicide at a higher rate. The men uh, actually kill themselves at a higher rate. Anyone know what accounts for that difference? Say more. That's it. That's it. Women use uh, pills. Typically, and men will use firearms. <clears throat> I think uh, symptoms of uh, untreated male mental health manifest in different ways, uh, which brings us to the, the intersection of criminal justice and mental health. More mental health treatment is housed in corrections, in our correction system, than in healthcare. 93% of all of our prisons. Our prisoners are men. 80% of all those arrested for violent crimes are male. Uh, we also know that a, a significant percentage of those who are incarcerated uh, are nonviolent drug offenders who are likely or have been using substances to cope with trauma. 92% um, of parents in prison are fathers. 80% of the justice involved in Colorado have an addiction disorder. 25% have a serious mental illness. A lot of the individuals who are incarcerated are people who would probably be uh, would benefit more from treatment than punishment. Um, so this really highlights the fact that for the first time, in many cases, uh, a man receives mental health treatment or substance use treatment not because they walked into their primary care doctor's office and said, you know what, I have a problem and I'd like to speak to uh, a social worker, 
It is unfortunately after they've been arrested and or convicted of a violent offense or a substance use related offense. Right? And why is that? Uh, I also knew as a provider working extensively with men, uh, men have a poor habit of waiting uh, until they are in the midst of some crisis or, or some terrible adversity before they reach out for help. Uh, when I was a social worker at the VA, for instance, I knew that when my phone was ringing, there was a very, very high likelihood that on the other end of that line was probably a man who was at his wit's end on the verge of losing his home, his spouse, his children, his job, or was uh, rapidly approaching rock bottom if he hadn't hit it already. Uh, I once toured the Colorado Crisis Center and I asked one of the supervisors about male utilization. Do men call this number? And she smiled kind of knowingly. She said, yeah, they do. Uh, they call late at night uh, after everyone in the house is asleep, typically after they've been drinking, and they will begin to open up only after repeated assurances of confidentiality. And again, why? You know, why are we waiting until uh, we are in the midst of uh, a crisis that might be too late to prevent, or after we've been arrested for a violent offense or a substance use-related crime? Here are, are, are several barriers. We're not going to address all of them today. Uh, the first being lack of emotional awareness or fluency or emotional literacy. Uh, a lot of men, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk in broad strokes today, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, and I, I understand that variation is the norm, uh, and I'm speaking in, in very general terms. But a lot of men and boys don't have emotional fluency. They don't learn how to uh, experience, let alone express, uncomfortable emotions in a healthy way. From a very early age, they're told to shut up if they're crying before they are given something to cry about. They're told that boys don't cry. Don't be a girl, don't be a sissy, right? They are expected from a very early age to man up in the face of any adversity, emotional or otherwise. And what they do learn is how to distract from uncomfortable feelings through the use of uh, substances or sex or other activities, not all of which are, are unhealthy, but oftentimes they are. Um, or they learn how to suppress them, how to push them down and so they no longer can, right? It's like a giant coiled metal spring and you push it, push it, push it down and eventually it builds up too much tension and it's coming up. And very often, it will in ways that can be harmful to yourself and to those around you. And uh, sadly, our, our bars and our prisons and our hospitals and our cemeteries are filled with men who never learned how to experience or express uncomfortable emotions, right? And again, there's, there's no such thing as a bad feeling or a good feeling. All of our feelings are appropriate. It's how we express them that get us in trouble. Next is the man rules, <clears throat> or the man code, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Dan Griffin of Griffin Recovery Enterprises, uh, he's an educator and a former clinician uh, who also worked extensively with men, says that you can go into any room and you can ask, what are the man rules? And there will be cultural variations, but you're going to get a list that looks a lot like this, right? And we know these. Little boys know how to read the man code before they know how to read. Don't cry. Don't lose control. Don't ask for help. Don't be weak. Don't back down. And so on. And this is, uh, this is socialized into men and boys from a very, very early age. Little boys are on the playground policing each other uh, per the man code as we speak. Something interesting happens, though, when you, when you look at the rules of successful treatment and recovery. Cry. Grieve. Ask for help. Express emotion. Have emotions. And express them. Be vulnerable 
and admit to being powerless. And then you look at the man rules juxtaposed against the rules of healthy and successful relationships. Let go of control, share your feelings, ask for help, be vulnerable, have intimacy, compromise trust, and so on. So, <clears throat> you realize that the, the rules of successful treatment and recovery or healthy relationships are in stark contradiction to the rules that we internalize as men, which keep us safe. And really that's what the manuals are about. They're about safety. They're based in fear. Fear, uh, for one, in losing status as a man. Your status as a man is very precarious. It's hard to, to gain and very, very easy to lose. And then it's also about actual safety from from trauma, from violence, and all of the above. Right? Going back to the criminal justice system, we have this false belief that one is either a an offender or a victim. When in actuality, hurt people hurt people. Right? And the vast majority of offenders uh, were offended and hurt and traumatized themselves long before they hurt anyone else. All right. Toxic masculinity. Raise your hand if you have heard this term. I just saw a uh, a, a bit of research in, in GQ, admittedly, but uh, it noted that uh, a very, very small percentage, I think less than 30% of men, have even are, are familiar with the term toxic masculinity. And I think 8% of those who were, only 8%, believe that they have ever displayed uh, toxic masculinity at any point in their life, uh, which shows you how big the problem is. Um, and I, I, I do want to concede that uh, this is a polarizing term. It's become politicized. Uh, and many men and others experience the term itself uh, as an attack on masculinity and uh, on men. What we're talking about are extremes, right? And the fact that whatever you call it, the ways that men and boys have been socialized in this country do contribute to uh, criminal behavior related to violence, substance use, and uh, to suicidality. Um, <clears throat> and I, I also, I'm very careful when I do these presentations to not come off as like a uh, a man-spreader or a men's rights activist. I'm not. Uh, I think we are living in a long overdue and rightful backlash to thousands of years of patriarchy. And a lot of men are feeling very lost, displaced, confused, frustrated, and angry. Um, <clears throat> men have always had a place or a role in the village. Right? We like to say that it takes a village to raise a healthy child, but I don't believe our villages can be healthy if the men aren't. Uh, and men have always had a place or a role in the village. In early times, it was traditionally as the provider or the protector. Uh, but masculinity is a fluid construct which has responded to cultural and economic shifts throughout history, sometimes uh, doing a better job of it than others. Um, Michael Kimmel discusses three archetypes in the history of the United States alone. One is the, the gent, and Michael Kimmel is a, uh, uh, an American scholar and sociologist who, uh, talks a lot about masculinity and, and patriarchy and so on. But he, uh, presents the genteel patriarch. And this was a landowner. Uh, he worked the land, he had cattle or, or crops. His children did the same. The, uh, urban, counterpart was the heroic artisan. And this man knew a trade or a skill that he taught to his sons or to apprentices. And of course, we could have all kinds of conversations around race or uh, patriarchy. But at the very least, these conceptions of masculinity were about, uh, or 
the measure of a man within these constructs were uh, around what do you contribute to society? What do you give back? Now enter here in the post-industrial age of capitalism, the self-made man or the marketplace man. Uh, the self-made man is a, a masculinity which is literally measurable. Uh, I can pit mine against yours, right? By measuring how much money I have in my account, how many women I can sleep with, what kind of car I drive, how much power and control I have over others, including other men. And many men are socialized to strive for these proofs of manhood, right? And in a capitalist system where you are bombarded with messaging from the time you are little that you're not good enough, and what you have and who you are is not enough, uh, you know, so we are, we are socialized to strive uh, for these proofs. We feel entitled to them in an actuality. Fire these proofs. And we find that many of them that do realize that's not where it's at either. Um, but many men are having a hard enough time providing for themselves and for their families, let alone being the self-made man that we are taught we ought to be. All of this uh, further cultivates a dog-eat-dog -dog world where it's every man for himself. Fighting for the top of the bottom. And the casualties of this struggle are not just men themselves. Right? When we look at this problem, when we look at suicide and over-incarceration and substance use and addiction and overdose deaths and violence, this impacts not just the men that are directly involved, but children, women, partners, families, communities, and all of society. And societal problems require a societal response. Men can't man up their way out of this alone. Uh, so far, I've really discussed one side of this equation. Um, a lot of mental health messaging campaigns, including one that I was a part of that I'll present to you uh, momentarily, uh, consistently encourage people to, to just be more open about their mental health challenges, to talk more. Men in particular are accused of being uh, uh, stubborn in their stoicism and self-destructively silent. Uh, we talked about emotional fluency and we uh, discussed it as being a uh, really essential to the development of uh, positive mental health and psychological resilience. Um, however, when we have discourse that calls out individuals, men and otherwise, for being quiet and not open enough about their mental health challenges while ignoring the social factors or the conditions, the external conditions which perpetuate poor mental health to begin with, uh, that's problematic. Um, this tact implicitly blames individuals alone for their mental health woes and glosses over growing evidence uh, that social context is a key determinant of health. Right? So the big stuff, like, uh, like racial oppression or uh, patriarchy, misogyny, and so on, but even... Uh, Situational factors, right? We find that, um, no surprise, that uh, substance use rates, suicide rates, and uh, rates of violence increase in areas where you have higher rate of unemployment and economic decline, right? So it's crucial that uh, we do more than encourage individuals, including men, to go find a, so a social worker or a therapist. Um, It should also be noted that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to mental health problems. And uh, traditional talk therapy doesn't work for all men. And uh, clinicians should be responsive in this regard and offer preferences. Um, I will say that I do think, uh, you know, the, the narrative that men don't like therapy and men won't open up and they don't like it uh, is a little overblown. Again, I've worked uh, in, in different contexts, criminal justice, um, in corrections, uh, county work, um, fatherhood work, healthcare, and on and on and on. And I've, I've facilitated groups with rival gang members, uh, combat veterans, like special forces guys, uh, former gang members, and 
uh, once they get going, they won't stop talking. I've had rival gang members passing the, the Kleenex box to one another. Okay? Uh, they will open up if they feel safe in doing so. And one of the questions is how can we as a society and as a community make men feel more safe to do that? I also want to acknowledge that uh, some men don't like talk therapy, and that's fine too. Uh, when I was a, a, a day therapist um, for juvenile probationers, we were encouraged to not try to sit down uh, in the traditional setting across from another face-to-face and, and, and do so-called traditional talk therapy, but go for a walk, play basketball together, play video games, right? With the understanding that sometimes uh, uh, action-based modalities of healing are just as valid uh, as others. And a lot of times uh, men will be more apt to work through their problems standing shoulder-to-shoulder rather than face-to-face or heart-to-heart. Additionally, I think it's important that we acknowledge that religious and traditional healing based on prayer, ritual, or ceremony can be effective in improving men's mental health, especially for minority and uh, and immigrant men. So as, and it really has a lot to do with why I moved into public health, but as a direct service provider, it really occurred to me early on that there's nothing inherently wrong with the individuals that I was helping. Right? Men, women, and their families. Uh, They were simply reacting to trauma and very often adjusting to inequitable systems. And my job was to help them beat the odds, not to change the odds. Uh, I was to help them do a better job coping with these systems rather than uh, making these systems more just and equitable. Uh, and when it comes to male mental health, Mo Keller, who's a uh, very strong mental health advocate in Colorado, once told me, the system isn't broken. The system hasn't even been built yet. Right? Luckily, there's growing awareness of that right here in Colorado. I'm going to tell you about just the ones that I know, and I'm sure that there are more efforts underway to address this problem. How many of you are familiar with man therapy? Man therapy is uh, a public health messaging campaign that came out of uh, the state public health department that uses, arguably, uses humor uh, to open discourse around male mental health. Uh, this guy is based on uh, Ron Burgundy and the, the guy from Ron Swanson from uh, Parks and Rec. Honestly, when I saw the billboard for the first time, I kind of wanted to call and make an appointment with this guy. It turns out he's an actor. He's not a real therapist. But it was effective. Um, I wanted to fire my therapist and talk to this guy. Uh, I wouldn't have actually done that. There's, there's some pushback because, uh, you know, critics claim that it kind of the, the messaging uh, kind of perpetuates a lot of the, the stereotypes that we are trying to dispel, right? Um, one of the, the messages is, going to therapy won't give you lady bits, I promise, right? Uh, so some, some folks have taken offense and that it's very white. Uh, and people uh, who are behind this have acknowledged that. Like, yes, uh, the, the number one, or the, the most at-risk suicide group is working age white men, right? And this is absolutely for a specific demographic, and we are trying to meet them, meet them where they're at, right? And besides, I think the men who are offended by this messaging are probably already in therapy, where we, where we should all be. <laughs> so I, I mentioned SIM, the state innovation model, uh, and uh, as a result of, of mine and, and other parallel efforts, uh, a 10-year call to action was issued uh, and was signed off on by Governor Hickenlooper before he left, one of the last things he did. Uh, but he called for a multi, multidisciplinary approach to address the mental health of boys and men. Uh, and the target of out, targeted outcomes include a decrease in the percentage of men who report poor mental health 
and a decrease in suicide rates for boys uh, working age, older men, and a decrease in prescription drug overdose tests for boys working age and older men. You can find the report online. It, it uh, calls out uh, specific strategies uh, for for doing this and hopefully achieving these goals. Uh, right. So it acknowledges that a lot of men are not coming into mental health treatment through primary care. So how can we be creative in, in how we outreach them, right? Maybe it's through our, our butt tenders and our barbers or our bartenders, right? Um, and uh, going through coaches and uh, athletic avenues and on and on. I encourage you to take a look at that if you're interested. <clears throat> Let's Talk Colorado, uh, the aforementioned public messaging campaign, uh, was designed to address mental health stigma. It was part of the, the Metro Public Health Behavioral Health Collaboration uh, led by Tri-County. Tri so several uh, local public health agencies came together because mental health and behavioral health was identified as such uh, a critical issue. It was launched in 2017 uh, at the Capitol for Mental Health Month and uh, it was derived from the award-winning Make It Okay campaign uh, out of Minnesota. Uh, the Make It Okay campaign was developed in Minnesota to address the high rates of depression in Minnesota. Turns out people were depressed because they were in Minnesota. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Nothing against Minnesota. So you go to our website. It's letstalkco.org. Make sure the, the T is capitalized. Otherwise, it's Let's Talk Colorado. That's not what we're about. But we have... Uh, a lot of uh, helpful information and, and tips and strategies for engaging and talking about mental health and mental illness. Uh, it, it's pertinent info for professionals and lay people alike. Uh, there's uh, collateral material you can print off directly from the site, or if you're interested, I have a lot that I can share with you. Uh, the idea is to put it in, in various settings, clinical settings, and just encourage people to, uh, to start the conversation. And uh, in alignment with that, that call to action I mentioned, uh, we decided to uh, create specific messaging uh, related to male mental health. And um, initially it was uh, our team and a group called Evolution, uh, a communications and marketing team. And we were trying to come up with, uh, I don't know, we felt we felt like madmen uh, designing, but, but like for good, designing these. Felt like Don Draper, but a good guy. And uh, it was fun coming up with like witty messaging that would resonate with men, uh, like with car metaphors and sports metaphors. Like your car, your brain is like an engine. Don't wait to blow a gasket before you get it tuned up. Or does life have you on the ropes? Don't throw in the towel. Mental health is a team sport, and and we loved it. And uh, we decided uh, that we should have focus groups to validate <laughs> our love for, for the messaging that we came up with. And uh, so we had nine focus groups, uh, LGBTQT men, veterans, Latino men, Latinx, uh, uh, formerly incarcerated, white-collar professionals. And everyone hated the messaging. <laughs> they didn't like the try-hard, uh, witty messaging. kind of hurt our feelings, but that's why. We do focus groups, and what they did like is very, very straightforward messaging. Uh, and they liked, so a lot of it was designed for men who directly might be experiencing mental health challenges themselves, or for their loved ones uh, who have concerns about someone in their life. Right? So messaging like it's courageous for a man to admit when he's struggling, anxious or overwhelmed. If he's brave enough to talk to you, listen to him. Just listen. So a couple things there. We wanted to uh, be subversive in the idea that a courageous man is someone who doesn't talk about their feelings, right? Who's stoic and silent. Actually, no. Uh, a courageous man is someone who, in the face of that socialization, says, you know what? Screw that. I actually could use some help, right? That's courageous. And, um, and also the just listen part. Uh, I don't know if any of you women have noticed, but sometimes men have... Uh, a tendency to not just listen and offer uh, unsolicited advice and solutions when you're having a problem. Uh, 
So we encouraged uh, the, the individual reaching out. Sometimes the best thing that one can do is just listen to the experience of another person. Um, and don't try to fix or uh, or solve the problems necessarily. Um, also, you don't have to have a heart-to-heart with a man, you know, to stand shoulder-to-shoulder. That was one of mine that made the cut. Happy to say. Uh, so letting letting people know that there's there's merit and value in spending just spending time and being there uh, for someone who, who you know again we're, we're socialized to to be lone wolves and to carry your own weight you know uh, and even just being present you don't have to be someone's therapist you don't have to be your, your your buddy's therapist necessarily you can just be his friend and be there and reach out there's value in that <laughs> next. Uh, very, very uh, proud to discuss this work. There's an outfit called uh, the CCGRC, the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, and they issued a report in 2016 called the Crime Survivors Report that uh, was really consistent with some other research that's come out of California and Oregon, for instance, um, that talks about crime survivors and victims of violent crime or survivors of violent crime. And the fact that uh, uh, many victims are individuals from underrepresented communities, people of color, and men and male youth in particular. And they tend to be repeat victims. And they tend not to get help. They tend not to be offered help, right? You don't see a lot of uh, young Latino men walking into a building that says victim services or trauma center, right? Uh, they demonstrated that minorities are treated differently within the criminal justice system. And uh, the fact that individuals from these communities believe that rehabilitation is better than punishment. It elevates a narrative, uh, really, that across the board, black and white and brown, left and right, Victims of crime themselves are acknowledging that these punitive measures aren't necessarily working, and there's uh, a desire, even amongst victims of violent crime, to see their offenders treated, rehabilitated, and transformed and healed, rather than sitting in a cell somewhere. Uh, so this report was launched in 2016, and it culminated in... Uh, legislation that was proposed, House Bill 1409, the Crime Survivors Grant Program, which would reallocate five-year pilot, about $850,000 a year for five years out of the Department of Corrections and put it in the Office of Violence Prevention at the State Public Health Department. And I was asked to testify in support of this bill. We had others, uh, such as um, Charletta Evans, who's uh, an amazing woman, who lost uh, her son to to, to violence uh, when he was about 15 years old, uh, and the two two boys were essentially arrested, and she was a, a staunch advocate for their release and their treatment because she believes that hurt people hurt people, and we need to do something to stop the cycle of violence. Um, there's there's another family um, there. Daughters, two of their daughters were killed in a a mass shooting at a church here in Colorado some years ago. Uh, a third daughter was was gravely injured but survived, and all of them are now advocates uh, because of the tremendous outpouring of love and support that they received from uh, various systems and their community. They had the realization that uh, in other communities, people lose their children to violence all the time, and they don't receive that same level of uh, support and compassion. And they advocate that all people do. Uh, so they they testified, and I testified, uh, in, in really framing uh, public safety as a, ma- a matter of public health. Right? It's not just cops, courts, and cages. Community and public health has a role to play in addressing public safety. Uh, told a story of how I went to Street Fraternity. Uh, Street Fraternity is a day program. The Aurora in Denver corridor off East Colfax. Uh, and it's primarily youth of color, um, immigrant and refugee youth. 
particular, and we went there to do a focus group, and we asked about the problem of violence in their community. Where does it happen? It happens at school, it happens at parks, places where, uh, in an ideal setting, those are the safest places to be, right? For them, it's the most dangerous. We asked, what do you do when you are confronted by the threat of violence, right? Do you think they said, we run and tell a trusted adult? Or we go and tell the police? No. No. We must meet that threat with overwhelming violence. Right? Or at least a threat of violence. What happens if you're victimized? What happens if someone hurts you? Do you run and tell a trusted adult? No. What do you do? You come back with a weapon or a gun or your people and you get revenge. What happens if you don't? Then they know you're a punk or a bitch, right? You're weak, and they can continue to hurt you. They can continue to victimize you, right? The idea of violence as a means of safety and protection in our community, it's not okay, right? The role of public health is uh, largely to change what is given. Some of you remember that you used to be able to smoke a cigarette on an airplane, right? Or a hospital, right? So public health came in and said, hey, hey, we're not saying you shouldn't be able to smoke in a bar, but do you really need to smoke on an airplane? And even the smokers are like, nah, I guess not, right? Listen, we're not saying you can't smoke in the restaurant, but maybe you just have your own section, right? Okay, fine, right? Now you can't smoke in a bar. So that's what we try to do, right? We, we try to change what is given. It's a given that in certain communities you are safe, right? If someone put, puts hands on your kid, in this neighborhood, in this community, all hell will break loose, right? In other communities, it's expected. It's just what happens. And that's what these youth are saying. This is how it is, right? It's the water. It's the reality. Uh, and I think public health has a role to play in changing that reality. Uh, or like Paulo Fieri says, what can we do today so that tomorrow we can do what we cannot do today? At least that's what I tell myself because I'm really a radical at heart. <laughs> Some might say sell out. Um, so I, I testified in support of this bill, and uh, a week later, it went to out of the House into the Senate, and uh, the CCGRC called me up on a Friday morning and said, hey, we could really use your help, because the bill is now sitting in uh, the State Military and Veterans Affairs Committee, which some of you know is affectionately known as the Kill Committee. That's where they send your bill to die. And uh, they thought it was going to be smooth sailing, but it, it landed there. Uh, so I show up, and the CCGRC's lobbyist comes out and says, we have good news, kind of. The bill's not dead yet. The bill's not dead yet. Um, oftentimes you know before you even go in there that you're wasting your time. They're willing to hear you out. They don't care about race. They don't care about criminal justice reform, but they are interested in male mental health. So if you can frame this in a way uh, around male mental health, we might have it. So everyone looks at me, right? No pressure. Uh, and I'm kind of seething because i got to convince this, this cattle rancher who decided that he ought to be a politician. Uh, I've got to condense my life's work into two minutes and convince these guys uh, why this is very important. Um, and uh, we all testified, and I, I was sitting there with my arms folded, sucking my teeth as they voted. And then my colleague nudged me, and she said, oh, my God, it passed. Right? I was so ex expected that it wouldn't, that uh, it really took me by surprise. It was a, a really proud moment for all of us and uh, a real game changer. That money has since increased to a million dollars a year, which, you know, is a drop in the bucket compared to what, what's left in their bucket. But uh, it's culminated in uh, the grant that I now work under primarily, Public Health for Public Safety, a community movement to engage in heal crime survivors. Uh, so our mission is to uh, reduce violence and promote healthy masculinity and trauma, inform gender-responsive intervention, individual and community healing, and systemic transformation. We have a 10-person community leadership team 
uh, engaged in the process of community-based participatory research. Uh, the team uh, is comprised of all people of color, mostly men and male youth, um, uh, but women as well, who all have lived experience and have uh, either been victims themselves or perpetrators, uh, again, most people are both, of violence, uh, justice involvement, and so on. One of the few occasions where in order to get the job, you have to fail your background check. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but there are an amazing team of, of uh, established as well as aspiring leaders in the making and uh, very excited to, to be a part of this work. They're doing a deeper dive on some of the research that was highlighted in uh, the Crime Survivors Report that I mentioned and will hopefully uh, uh, assist in the provision of technical support and training around best practices. And uh, ideally, and we're, we're going to have a summit uh, public health for public safety summit tentatively named uh, April 9th at the Lowry Conference Center uh, in the coming year. Uh, so stay tuned for, for more information about that. Um, the idea is that uh, oh, some of the other uh, there's direct service grantees that received funding as well including a collaborative uh, like a coalition of practitioners of color. Uh, so these are therapists. Uh, I think there's 12 plus therapists. They're all people of color, uh, all from the communities uh, where uh, they're trying to reach the people that, that need help. Um, you get 20 free sessions. Uh, you don't have to... Ha all you have to do is say, I've, I've been a victim of, of trauma. Right? You don't need a police report to correspond uh, with your claim. Uh, we know that one of the barriers to people uh, reporting is in certain systems like in, in public housing, uh, if you are a victim of violence, domestic violence, or your neighbor is, and you call and you report, that's a police contact. That could put your housing status in jeopardy, right? And others have perfectly uh, legitimate reasons for not wanting to deal with police at all, oftentimes because they themselves have been traumatized by police. Uh, so we, we were very uh, adamant that uh, we don't need a police report um, for someone to get help uh, and so on. So ideally we would like to go back to the legislature or to foundations and say with, uh, uh, with confidence, like, you know how what you're doing isn't working? Maybe not that cavalierly, right? But how this incarceration isn't actually reducing violence, but is increasing it in our communities, and that uh, incarceration actually increases the likelihood that someone will experience violence and then go on to commit it later. You know how that's not working, and then it's increasing recidivism? Here's what does work, right? The Latino uh, uh, coalition is heading this grant. Other entities uh, have, like, more traditionally-based healing modalities, right? Uh, acupuncture and so on. And when you go into these trusted spaces with people you know from your community and you engage in healing circles or uh, culturally-based healing modalities, uh, it's increasing the rate of referral to uh, other systems like MHCD and so on. So it's truly a, a collaborative public health coordinated approach to providing help and service to people uh, that need it most. Next is uh, Men Up, which is a more loose... Uh, coalition of folks. Um, it's the Denver Metro Coalition to create a collaborative response uh, through the challenges that men experience related to their, men, their uh, mental health. Through a cross-section of public health, human services, athletics, mental health, fatherhood, substance use, recovery, veterans care, and criminal justice. Um, so, we're, again, we're really trying to create that system uh, for male mental health that really hasn't been built yet. Uh, so our our hope is that through training, education, technical assistance, convening, and coordination, uh, we'll cultivate that healthy village uh, where men are not fighting against one another uh, for the top or the bottom or for their piece of the world, but are rather working alongside one another to change it. 
So again, those are some of the, the efforts underway in Colorado. This is my contact information if, if anyone of you are interested in, in learning more or continuing this conversation. Uh, I'm going to open it for any questions. I think we're, we're ending a little early, but I do want to close with, with a story. Um, I mentioned at the start that uh, I was a young father. I was a, a dad at 17 and a, a single father at the age of 21. Uh, but before my wife left, uh, there was this thing I would do with our daughter that she hated, my wife, but our daughter loved. Maybe that's why she left. But I would hold her by the waist. She's about two years old. And I would throw her into the air. And she would scream in terror. And then I'd catch her. And she'd squeal in delight. Right? I'd throw her in the air. And she'd scream in terror. And I'd catch her. And she'd howl in joy. And years later, I would learn that this activity is actually healthy. I'm forming neurological pathways in her brain, sending her the message that life can be a dangerous place filled with uncertainty. And I'm safe. It's happening again. And I'm okay. You've got to catch them every time. That's the trick. <laughs> and in the years that followed, uh, there are many, many times where I felt very much up in the air and uh, uncertain as to how or where I would land. And luckily, there were people in my life who were there to catch me. So, uh, spend some time today thinking about the men in your life who might be up in the air and uh, think about how you might be there to catch them. Thank you all so much for being here and uh, I'd love to answer any questions you might have. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.